Well, marriage is a, is a much talked about subject, uh, both in our country, also in the Supreme Court as they're considering um, measures regarding marriage. It, it, it seems to be that the options regarding marriage are legislated, uh, reformulated, or um, and that was actually in 2004, the Massachusetts State Supreme Court uh, defined marriage as an evolving paradigm. Um, or, or some, 39% of those that are younger, see marriage as something that is becoming obsolete. So you can eliminate it. Those are the seeming to be the options here. But there's something unique about marriage as an institution. There's something radically unique about it as kind of a foundation of society. A theologian from the 19th century said it's difficult to overrate the importance of marriage. The well-being of nations and the happiness of society are closely connected with right views upon them. Nations are nothing but a collection of families, and the good order of families depends entirely on keeping up the highest standard of respect for the marriage tie. But there's something even more unique about marriage than its foundational role in society. There's something transcendent about marriage. There's something that goes beyond. There's something that is that is fundamental to us to, to relate to one another through the bonds of marriage. And the conventional wisdom is, is waffling on their understanding of marriage. But divine wisdom is not. God has made very clear to us that marriage is his invention. It's his creation. It's been given to us. You know, as we've been looking through Matthew in chapter 18, Matthew 18 was really about how the church is to relate together, how, how we are to live life in the kingdom. But, but, in, but starting in chapter 19, verse 1, through the end of 20, we're going to be looking more at Jesus trying to instruct his disciples in the divine wisdom of the kingdom as it is contrasted with the conventional wisdom of men and women. So there's going to be this compare and contrast that we'll be doing over the weeks between this is, what, this is what men and women have determined truth about life, but here's what God has said about it. And those in the kingdom are to be influenced and directed and led to understand how God sees things and not simply how we have refashioned them in our image. So if you turn with me, we're going to look at chapter 19, 1 to 12. And the first topic he brings up, is, is no small topic. It's marriage and divorce and singleness. And while they each deserve a sermon on their own, um, I want to bring them together for this sermon so we can see how they relate to one another. So I'll read in chapter 19, 1 to 12. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. But therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses, allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. 
The disciple said to him, well, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have, made, who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. I want to just look at this in terms of the questions that are being asked of, of Jesus. There are really three questions. The third one isn't stated in such a form, but it kind of was given intentionally as a question. And look at them as marriage and divorce and then singleness. Um, and you're going to notice in verse 1 and 2, he's left Galilee. This is just a contextual note. He's left Galilee. He's moving south to Judea. And he's moving towards Jerusalem where he's ultimately going to die. And so in the change of locations, we kind of see this change in topics. And and that's why we're here. Okay, so the first question you see in verse 3 is clear. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, this is asked by the Pharisees. The Pharisees are different than the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were a group of religious people that were more politically motivated. The Pharisees, many of them were actually businessmen. But they were sticklers for the law. They paid great attention to the observance of the law. They were respected among the community. But they were jealous of Jesus. Look in verse 2 where large crowds followed him and he healed them. They were jealous of his popularity. They were jealous of his power. And so they're not coming looking for wisdom. They're coming to test him, to undermine him, to kind of put him in a position of losing face with the people. And so they asked this question about the nature of, is there any cause that we can divorce a wife? You know, what constitutes a divorce really is a question. Now, divorce really wasn't an issue. Everybody understood there to be divorce in society. The debate was between two schools of thought, a conservative school and a liberal school. In other words, what constitutes a divorce? See, they both, both... Schools look back to Deuteronomy 24. In Deuteronomy 24, Moses, it says, that permitted a divorce, he commanded that a certificate would be given if it was found that a marriage partner had committed some form of indecency. Well, of course, that's, the, that's what everything turned on. What does it mean that they had to commit a form of indecency? Well, the conservative school said, no, that indecency has to be something significant, a serious matrimonial offense, a a sexual sin. And if it wasn't of that nature, then no divorce was granted. The school Hillel was a more liberal school, and they would interpret this idea of any indecency as being absolutely frivolous. I mean, down to the woman said something against her in-laws, or or she burned a meal, or, or, or she... One Pharisee said her face was no longer pleasing. That would be an indecency that would just... You can see how it was open to such abuse. Josephus, the Jewish historian of the first century, said, I divorced my wife being displeased at her behavior. So you can imagine the abuse that is brought. So Jesus, having the question put before him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause... He asks them a question, and it's an absolute rebuke. He says, have you not read? It's like going to the seminary and says, hey, have you guys read Genesis lately? Do you know what God says about marriage? 
He doesn't even speak to their minimalistic view of Scripture. They're trying to narrow down, okay, and, and we have to be careful of doing the same thing. We look at the text and determine, does it give me an allowance to do what I already want to do? That's the way they're looking at the text. Jesus won't go there. He goes back to the intention of marriage. He begins to speak about what God designed in marriage. And he says this. His answer is, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? See, what Jesus is doing is reminding them of God's divine order in marriage. He says, from the beginning, God created one male, one female. He created them equal, but he created them differently. Now, you know the differences in biology are clear, but there are also differences in psychology. Differences between men and women, the way they think, the way they argue, the way they express themselves, the way they back cars in the garages. There's all kinds of differences here. But no, these are going to be important, as I'm going to try to share with you. After 30 years, you get to do that. There, there are, <laughs> I don't know where I am right now, other than in trouble, yeah. <clears throat> what, what he's saying is that this order between male and female is significant to achieve one flesh. God could have made it two men. He could have made two women. He could have created a man with many women. He could have done it. He created one male and one female with differences that were supposed to complement each other. Now, in today's conventional wisdom, marriage is a social construct. What that means is society has constructed a new definition of marriage, that we are wise enough and intelligent enough to determine and refashion marriage. Now, this won't work according to divine wisdom. Now, let me say this. If two men or two women form a relationship, they can form a relationship, they can form a union. They can but it's not a marriage as God defines. Now remember, marriage, God has designed it. He's created it. He determines how it's used and how it's engaged. I mean, so many times I'll be up working and, and uh, I won't have a hammer, but I'll have a screwdriver. I'll notice a nail. And, and you know, sometimes just I don't want to get down and get the hammer. I want to get the screwdriver. Just pound the nail in with the back end of the screwdriver. Well, you can do that, but it generally doesn't function well. You, you end up ruining the screwdriver, you ruin the nail, and you, and you bust up the wall around the nail. You, you can do these things, but God has designed it one male and one female. Now, in the, the voices, even within evangelicalism today, uh, many are moving to wanting to embrace this idea of same-sex marriage. Now, there's much to be said about this that I can't say. I just want to simply show you in Scripture how making them male and female with differences, but equality, is how God intends to fashion the two into one. And that other means made effort toward will not achieve the same end. So the first thing Jesus teaches them about marriage is that it's divinely ordered. But the second thing he speaks about marriage is the priority of marriage. Look what he says that a man, and it's presumed a woman as well, will leave father and mother and hold fast to his wife. There's this idea that, that in the beginning when parents have children, that's an essential relationship for the well-being of the family. 
But that essential relationship is quickly made secondary to the primary relationship between the husband and the wife. And there has to be this leaving so as to hold fast. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher in in Britain in the 19th century, said, in all other ties are feeble compared to this. In other words, all other relationships have to pay service to the marital union for the creation of one flesh. Now, you may not see it in your own family, but you often see it in other families that when a mother or father dotes on a children and the primary function or the primary and the priority of effort is given towards the children, that it takes away from the value and the benefit and the joy of the marital union. You see a disordered love. And parents, this is a warning to all of us, that if we, men leading, women responding, if you put the priority in the children, it will come from the marital union. And it will come from your ability to enjoy the the, the peace and the joy that God intends for one flesh. The same thing when a newly married couple is overly connected to parents. That's an unhealthy thing. It's unhealthy. Because they have to fashion their own union. I remember telling the girls when they got married, don't call me for wisdom. You talk to your husband. If he wants to talk to me, the both of you can talk to me. I don't want you coming to me first. I mean, I I felt like I needed to say that. After 20, 21, 22 years, that was the pattern that was established. You start with your husband. That's the union that we want to see flourish. We, as parents, are now seeking to serve that union. So there's a divine order. There's also a priority, but there's an intimacy that's expected in this marital union. Notice that it's holding fast. You, You know, you can have... You can have affections, you can have sexual relationships without having marriage, but a marriage is an intimacy that moves to a deep friendship. That's the intention. This holding fast, the idea is like glue or welded pieces of metal or like skin on bone. That's the one flesh idea. There's an intimacy. There is a shared life. There's shared goals. There's shared dreams. There's actually a shared identity. And that's why traditionally people share the same name. That that their oneness is expressed through sexuality and through finances and through emotions and through all all the aspects of life that they share this oneness. And you see in Genesis, God even says they were naked and they were unashamed. In other words, that nakedness is there is a total openness between husband and wife, and yet there is no fear. There is no fear of rejection. There is no fear of loss of love once you really know who I am. There's a commitment to one another. I mean, shouldn't we assume that if God has brought the male and the female together to be one flesh, shouldn't we assume that should be the most intimate relationship? I mean, should there be other relationships that are of closer proximity to one another than these two? So there has to be a friendship. Now remember, this is becoming one flesh. We aren't one flesh. It's not an indicative. It's a, it's a progressive nature that we become one flesh through striving and forgiving and repenting and that sort of thing. But then there's this last part of it that you see. Jesus is still teaching on marriage. He talks about a permanence in marriage. What God has joined together, let not man separate. So it's not the pastor who officiates the service. It's not the state who issues a license, but it's God himself who fashions the two together. God cements the two. And really, it's seen in a public way through the vows. 
So when they make vows to one another, promising to God, they're promising to each other to stay together to what? Till death do us part. There's a permanence to it. In fact, really, the vows are, are just showing the covenant they're making. And you know, all covenants aren't done for the past, and all covenants aren't done for the present. Covenants always look forward. That's why the vows are always made in promissory terms. I promise. It's always looking forward. Why? Because the intention of marriage is to be permanent. I think about even uh, we celebrated Jack Rhoda's funeral yesterday. He's going to be with 60 plus years of marriage till death do us part. That's the intention of God's design. So when you look at them wanting to pick you the details of how can I get a divorce to Jesus saying, no, this is what God intends. God intends this, this divine order that, that has priority over all things. There's an intimacy that you're marching towards, a friendship, a deep friendship, as well as a permanence. This is where our joy is to come from. I mean, God has given us marriage to be a place of great security and significance and joy, satisfaction in life. I mean, it is, as one author said, the most primal relationship. It is the most personal relationship. And it is, for our joy, the most powerful relationship. Carol has more influence on me than 10 other people do. If I receive 10 criticisms from somebody, and Carol looks at me and says, I think you did the right thing. She has greater power than the aggregate influence of other people. Why? She's my wife. We're one flesh, striving side by side together for faith in the gospel. I mean, it's powerful. At the same time, if our relationship is weak, I can hear ten things of a positive nature. And if she levels me, which she doesn't, by God's grace, if she were to level me at the knees, wouldn't even hear the other ten. It's a powerful relationship. It's a glorious relationship. But it's even a relationship that doesn't just deliver joy to us, but it also displays the greatness of God. Now, you often hear marriage as relating to Christ in the church, and it does that. Paul makes that clear in Ephesians 5. But it also displays the Trinity. Think about the two becoming one. The way you look at marriage, the two becoming one, there's equality, but there's diversity, there's security, there's permanence, there's intimacy, there's love. That's what's to take place in our marital union. The two fashioned into one. Think about the triune God. The triune God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, they are equal. It's, we believe in one God, and God has expressed himself in three distinct persons, and yet they're united, and yet they're diverse, and yet it's permanent, it's intimate. There's, there's community there. So our marriages are actually to reflect to the world. Because we're image bearers, we bear his image, it makes sense that we bear the image of the triune God within our own marriage. Now, this doesn't mean we're not going to have trouble. It doesn't mean we're not going to struggle with one another. That's why, that's why Matthew records 18 before 19. I mean, what do we learn in chapter 18? Unlimited forgiveness by the power of the gospel. And marriage needs that. I mean, marriage needs forgiveness because we're so close, so easy to offend each other. So if you're married here, ask yourself, how are you, and don't, please don't think how your spouse may need to hear this, or other people. Just ask yourself. I mean, do I understand the divine order of my role as a male or as a female? Do I understand masculinity as God intends? I don't mean some patriarchalism. I don't mean some 
TV-type masculinity. I mean a biblical masculinity where you lay your life down and you sacrifice and you serve and you pick up the towel and you wash feet if you need to. A biblical masculinity. Do you understand that? And a femininity and how you relate to one another. Do you understand the priority? Has your wife or husband received the priority of your time, your effort? Has he or she received that? Or, or the intimacy do you find yourself marching towards a growing oneness with your spouse? Or have you just succumbed to the fact that it is what it is and that's what I've got and I'm not going to try anymore? You can't change him, you can't change her. Do we fall prey to that? Have we forgotten that God, the depths of the earth, are in his hands and the mountain peaks belong to him and the sea is his because he made it? Do we forget that? Or, or, or the permanence? I will not marry a couple that finds divorce to be an option for them. Won't do it. We went into this, no options. It's, it's just, it's not there as an option on the table. So do you see a permanence? Well, review your marriages. And, and, and let me ask you, repent. Don't hang your head down right now as if you lost a race you should have run. God has given us repentance as a means of grace so that when we do act with introspection by his word, that we can be led to forgiveness and delight in the gospel, that, that we can enjoy the grace that he gives us, that mercies are new every morning to us. So repent to your spouse, repent to one another, ask for grace. But then I would call you to walk in faith, that you would appropriate the promises of the gospel. Now, what does faith mean? Faith means believing God right now is going to move in me to advance my gospel to his pur- or to advance my marriage to his purposes. That I'm going to begin moving with love. And I'm going to move with love even though they may not respond with love or they may not deserve love. You know, love is not an emotion per se. It's an action. I'm choosing to love. Otherwise, how could Jesus say to us, love your enemies? I have no emotion of love for my enemies. That's why they're my enemies but I can move with action toward them. And, and what's amazing, and Carol and I were listening to a sermon um, by Tim Keller on marriage on Friday night, and, and it's amazing when you move with action or you move with motion, then emotion comes behind it. God favors those as we walk with obedience. And so we can, we can love our spouse, even though not lovable. We do it for the glory of God, and we do it because we believe, we have faith that he will move in accordance with his word, and he will honor the faithful obedience of his children. So that's what Jesus says. It's a lot about marriage. It's a lot about marriage. They came asking for, how can I divorce my wife? And he says, look at the beauty that God has created for us in marriage. I mean, think about the divine order, male and female coming together, giving priority to one another, developing intimate relationship that will last into death. Is there anything better? Can you find a better relationship with anyone besides what I've just explained? This is a life-giving relationship. Let us treat it as such. If we did treat it as such, if we did, that is the church of Jesus Christ did, you wouldn't have the problems that we're now facing to the same degree. Do you realize in 1920, one out of seven marriages ended in divorce? In 1940, two, or excuse me, six, a one in six ended in divorce. In 1960, um, one in four. So, wow, I'm so glad I got out of accounting. Yeah, one divorce. <laughs> I, I was... 
I was surfing there for a minute. I always ask Carol, can you tell when I'm surfing? She says, I didn't notice. I don't know if she's telling the truth. Okay, so one divorce for every four marriages in 60. In 1972, one divorce for every three marriages. And now, the marriages that come out of the gate now, one in two. Well, I've got to start with us. I, I have to start with, are we displaying the glory of a triune God? Are we displaying that to our children? What do our children understand of marriage? Remember, you will set the stage for how your children understand marriage, how they understand the role of masculinity and how they understand the role of femininity, what a service, what a sacrifice means. They'll pick it up from you. You're setting the paradigm right now. That's why we sing songs like, Oh God, I need you. Every hour I need you. It's a profound opportunity we have. Don't be overwhelmed by it. Move towards it by faith. By faith. Okay, but Jesus obviously takes the next question which they ask, and all marriages do not move towards that ideal, and many do end in divorce, as I've just told you. And so they ask this question, well then why did Moses give or command them uh, to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now let me, let me explain this, because this is a little confusing. Moses, by the way, didn't endorse, he didn't advocate, he didn't command anybody to divorce anyone. Let me explain the scene. Uh, divorce, as I said, was very rampant, and it was happening on very frivolous terms. What Moses was doing in commanding a certificate of divorce to be given, remember, a man could see a woman, and it was tilted toward the man. It was really tilted toward the man. It was very difficult on the woman. And a man, whether desiring to control or manipulate or even get married to somebody else, that's the warning and that's the rejection, or I should say the condemnation that God gives to the Israelites in Malachi chapter 2. You know, they're divorcing their wives of their youth so as could marry younger wives. And so Moses commanded them to give a certificate of divorce. In other words, if there is some indecency that you have found in her, then you get witnesses and you write down what that is so that she has a certificate that defends her faithfulness to you. So that A, it would protect the reputation of a woman. B, it would deter marriage. And C, it would allow her to get remarried again. Because what was happening is they threatened their wives and move them out of the house. Well, then these women who've spent their lives serving their husbands had no ability to provide for themselves would then be forced into prostitution. They'd be forced to live on the street. And so it was, it was ruining society. And so what Moses is doing is he's not commanding a divorce. He's actually granting a concession because of the hardness of our hearts to one another. It was a concession. It was a concession by the mercy of God, and they turned it into a command. So you gotta, it's a command to divorce your wife. No, it was a concession because of your stubbornness and your hardness of heart. What does Jesus say about divorce? Well, you can read it with me in verse in verse 9, he says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus is saying this. He's not commanding divorce. He's permitting divorce in the case of sexual immorality. The word sexual immorality, there is a Greek word for adultery. He didn't use that here. He used the word porneia. It's a broader word. It has a wider range of meanings. It can include adultery. It can include prostitution. It can include fornication, sex outside of marriage. But, but it's a sexual sin against the marital union. And Jesus is saying is there is no divorce among the brethren, among the Christian. There's no divorce 
except in this case. He's not commanding it in this case. There can be forgiveness through the grace of God and the restoration of a marriage. But, but this one particular sin is so injurious to the union created by God that divorce is permitted. Now, Matthew and Mark don't include this exception clause. Why don't they? Many people think Matthew added it to lessen the demands of marriage. I don't think so. I think Mark and Luke assumed it. Why? Because adultery would have always resulted in stoning, which would have dissolved the marital union. And now, there's no stoning. Jesus is removing stoning. And he's saying, no, you can give her a certificate of divorce for this sin. Now, when we talk about divorce, um, all of us have been touched by it or have walked through it. All of us have. And when I, when I speak about this, I think we all recognize that all divorces attend it with pain. Uh, this idea of let no man separate, or the old English, do not tear asunder. If it's true what God has joined together, so that in flushing that God does, then divorce is like tearing my own flesh. It, it's a picture of great pain, uh, emotional pain, awkwardness in relationships, difficult for children, difficult at holidays, and all the different stuff that kids have to do. It's a painful painful thing. And I don't want us to be so clinical and theoretical and just read this and understand it without understanding the nature of the pain. Divorce is always painful. Sometimes divorce is necessary. It is necessary sometimes. If there is intractability, if there is unrepentance, if there is continued injury of unfaithfulness in the family, that sometimes divorce, though regrettable, can be a gracious provision to protect a victim from further victimization, a true victim from further victimization. So it is, it is sometimes necessary. But I, I want to I be soft with this. I want to find a balance here. I, on one hand, I want to hold up the sanctity of marriage to you and help you see that it is so valuable that you have to strive towards it with every ounce of energy you have. And at the same time, I don't want to hold divorce as the unforgivable sin. Do you realize that Joseph, the husband of Mary, it says in Scripture that he's a righteous man? And do you realize he was going to send her away? That's the language out of Deuteronomy 24. When he found that she was pregnant and he wasn't the father, so I, I don't want to come down so hard and so <clears throat> black and white. And life is complicated, and, and our marriages get very complicated. And so I want to try to find that balance. I, I want us as a church to be, to be concerned for those that are struggling in marriage, to be broken as they're broken, to weep with them and serve them and, and point them to the greatness of God without lessening the glory and the value and the importance of marriage. It's a very difficult road to walk. It's a very difficult sermon to preach. It's very hard for us to walk this out. But I trust by God's grace that he'll do this. So Jesus speaks on marriage. He speaks on divorce. But then notice, look at the reaction of the disciples in verse 10 and 11 and 12. This is, they would not have been in a magnet school. I am convinced of that. 
these disciples, well, such the case of a man with his wife. In other words, Jesus, you've taken out the quick exit plan. You know, this is the quick, this indecency thing that we could pull out of the hat when we need it to get out of a difficult marriage, long-standing frustration and trouble. Let's just get out of it. He doesn't allow that, and he says this. <clears throat> they say, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better to not marry. In other words, they're thinking, singleness is my track out. That singleness is less than marriage. That singleness is somehow in fear, I'll just go the easy route. And frankly, folks, that's what we see as the marital age of people, for most at least, is being pushed back further and further. Rather be single than be married. Well, Jesus, of course, challenged this, this view, and he says, he says this to him, not everyone can receive this saying. And, and the saying that he's speaking about is, is singleness. He says, only to those to whom it is given. What Jesus says here about singleness is very important. Singleness is a calling as much as marriage is. It's the same thing. It's a calling. And that's what Jesus is driving. It's not inferior to marriage. And by the way, it's not superior to marriage. It's a different calling. And that's why he speaks about this idea of a eunuch. A eunuch is a, a man who is unable to reproduce sexually with a woman. And, and he says some eunuchs are, are by birth. In other words, they're just born with, with a body that is unable to walk in the fullness of marriage. Uh, some eunuchs are made, or they are made that way. You know, in other words, in kind of the ancient day, if you were a court official working with the women of the court, you would be made a eunuch so as to not incur temptation and infidelity with the wives of the king. And then the third group, Jesus says, is, is some. There are those eunuchs who made themselves eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. This is not literal here, as some of the past origin, one in particular, made himself a eunuch, thinking this is literal. I don't think it's literal. It's metaphorical. It's the person who says, I am committed to the kingdom. I'm gifted. I'm called to serve these people. And so I'm going for, to forego marriage for the value of the kingdom or I'm going to go serve in a locale that is dangerous to a family, or the demands of ministry are such that I cannot afford to be an effective leader and provider for a family and minister in this context, and I'm called to minister in that context. So they're called to a life of singleness for the purposes of the kingdom. Jesus would be your example, number one. Paul, if he was married, did not remarry, or if he wasn't married, he stayed single. And you have just a history filled with people that remain single for the purposes of the gospel. Even John Stott, an English theologian and pastor, many of you know his name, died within the last 10 years. He never intended to be single per se. He didn't have that call. But by the time he hit 35 and 40 years old, his ministry was very busy. He was active in the work of the kingdom. And he made the choice. I'm going to remain single for the purposes of the kingdom. So it's a call here. It's a call here. It's a glorious call. It's not better. It's not worse. It's just different call that God puts on the hearts of some men and some women. Now, many of the singles that we know, though, don't fall into one of these three camps. I mean, they're not single by choice or by design. It may be there's no opportunity. It may be single through divorce or even single through uh, the spouse dying. What do I say to them? How do you walk? This is kind of like a temporary call. I would, not say, I would not say deny the desire to be married. Don't deny the desire. 
<clears throat> I just wouldn't let the desire prevent me from walking in the singleness that I currently have. In other words, leverage your singleness now while you are single. And leverage, leverage it by doing things for the kingdom that you couldn't do if you were to be married. In other words, don't waste your singleness, but pursue it in, in ways that only you can do. As you're single, you have more time, you have more flexibility, you have less responsibility, by and large, than, than a married couple will. And so utilize that. Ask God, ask your brothers and sisters, how can I utilize my singleness for the glory of God to advance the kingdom? As opposed to just pining away and begrudging God's providence in your life. No, no, no. Look at it as this is a temporary call to singleness until God raises up a spouse. And I'm going to use it for his glory and for his purposes. So Jesus here speaks to us in very straight very straight terms on the nature of marriage. Those of us who are married, married, I would ask you to consider these, these verses. Speak to your wife about it. Where am I failing in this? Where can we better? If you don't both talk, it's never going to affect you for the good. I don't want to inform you theologically on these truths. I want to see your lives actually changed by them. And the way your lives are changed is not by hearing the word, but by hearing and doing the word. And for those of you who are divorced, hear the compassion. I, I, I pray, we even prayed prior to the prayer time that the words would be delivered with a gentleness, a gentleness that recognizes everyone in this room is a sinner, broken by grace. And even those that have stayed in marriage, many of them have stayed in, in struggling marriage. Nobody is without need for Jesus Christ. We need him every hour. We do, all of us need him. I pray that you would, you would move, that we wouldn't see uh, divorce rendering a person somehow less than. And I think that's the temptation, but may we, may we move beyond that. And then singleness, he speaks to it. It's a calling. And for many of you, even if you desire marriage, let it be a temporary calling, but be engaged in this work of the kingdom while you have the freedoms that you do. So let's take a minute now, if we can, and just silently speak to God about the perhaps the conviction leading to confession. Perhaps you've discovered a greater need you have. Well, then appeal to God for mercy. Appeal to him for grace. And then Keith is going to close us in just a few minutes.